Well, it's good to see everyone here today. Let's dismiss in prayer. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We're not there yet. Genesis chapter 1. How about that? Genesis chapter 1. We're glad you're here. Got a little bit of change up and, and transitions and things going on. Got some folks traveling. Uh, John Rasick and the youth are at a fall retreat. And uh, so we're missing him today and all the different things that he takes care of. And uh, uh, here in just a couple of weeks, we do have a new minister of music that's going to be starting on October 16th. Brother Mike Heffley, and uh, he'll be here next week. Uh, the choir, I believe, is is slated to lead the music, so we're just kind of in transition. And I appreciate all of our worship team and those who give and serve in various capacities. Genesis 1, we're actually going to look at verses 1 through 27, uh, quite a big swath here, and we'll break it up into a couple of three pieces. Um, you know, as, in, as curious and intelligent beings who trod this earth and looking around and observe all sorts of things and see all sorts of interesting things, see all sorts of things that cause us to, to wonder what in the world, where in the world, you know, uh, what's that all about? And, and that's one of the things that we just do as humans. We try to make sense of life and, and everything that's around us. We ask questions like, where did all of this come from? Where is it going? How are things ordered? What are the, is the center of the universe? You know, in, in some ways... You know, religion or uh, worship, you could s somewhat see as trying to find that, that center thing, the big thing that goes in the very center, the thing that is the greatest and most worthy and wonderful. And, and I think that that's connected to our trying to make sense of the world. What is our place in this world? What should we bow to? What should bow to us? And uh, we ask all those kinds of big questions. So we're in Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look, oh, may, probably on through Genesis chapter 3 in the days ahead. I don't have it all mapped out perfectly, but uh, doing a series on foundations of the faith, the basic teachings of the faith um, that are really foundational. Before we even get to the point of salvation in Christ, just where did all of these things come from? And, and, and so these are really trying to answer or seeing how the Bible answers some big questions in life. You know, at least in the Western civilization, the Western part of, of the world, um, there was a long prevailing thought called geocentrism, which is that the earth, geo, was the center of everything, right? You've learned this probably in science, looking at the way uh, theories have changed about things. But this idea that, that, that the earth is, is just absolutely the center of everything. But, oh, probably from what I read, maybe around the 3rd century B.C., some Greek philosophers and people were looking up at the way things operated and started to ask questions and, and doubt that. To doubt that the, the earth was the center of everything. And they came up with a different model or theory, heliocentrism, that it, the sun actually is the very center of the universe. And then our earth spins around that. It, that blew people's minds. I mean, there was all kinds of religious debates and people fighting about that, you know, philosophers and different people, but you may uh, remember the name Copernicus. Nicholas Copernicus, actually a Christian or Catholic cleric, came up with the mathematical model that somewhat proved, no, this seems to be the way things work. So you had this geocentrism, the earth is the center of everything, and then you had uh, Copernicus and those who followed in his wake saying no heliocentrism, that the, the sun is the center of the universe. Then later we realized, well, the, the sun is the gravitational center, if you will, of 
this solar system, but not the entire created realm or the universe. But here's what I would say to you. Both of those models are wrong. The correct model is theocentrism. That is that God is at the center of everything. And Genesis 1 lays this out, as Adrian Rogers used to say, big, plain, and straight. It lays it out for us. We see it. It's there. And we began, and we just look at Genesis 1-1 last week, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that's where we began. And, and I want to keep on going. And I entitled this message, The Divine Drama of Creation. And really, that's the first point. And I want us to look at the first three verses of Genesis 1 under that heading, The Divine Drama of Creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let's stop right there. Theocentric viewpoint that God is at the center of everything. Here's what I want you to leave here with today. It's that. Primarily that, that God, the creator, is at the center of everything. We have a way of trying to put all sorts of other things as the source and the center of our lives, especially myself. And it seems to be that we can live our lives in a way that I'm at the very center of everything. And that is totally wrong. That's as wrong as thinking that everything revolves around this planet thinking that everything revolves around us. It doesn't, but everything truly does start with God, comes back to God, is for God, by God. All of those things, theocentric view of reality. And so here is this divine drama now in the beginning. So there was a time when there was nothing created. The only thing that existed was the uncreated one, God Almighty. But he did something. He acted, he worked, he created. And so here is the divine drama. We actually see in these words, God is at work. Work is a good thing. It comes from God. The overflow of his creativity and his power and his infinite being and his love caused him to go to work. And here is this drama going on. The word God. In the beginning, God, Elohim. There are actually two words in Genesis translated God, but that's the first one, Elohim. And it's actually plural. Elohim, meaning it indicates more than one. But then it says, in the beginning, God created. Created is the verb, it's the action, and it's singular. It points to a singular being. So it's interesting that in the very first verse or two of the Bible, there is, many would say, a hint at the idea that God is actually a different kind of being than we might expect. He is both plural and singular. He is three and he is one. And we also see a hint of that, that this God who is at work, we see a little bit of the Trinitarian nature when it says that the Spirit of God is hovering over this initial primordial mass that is tohu and bohu. It's, it's, it's empty and void or shapeless Lots of ways that they would translate that. But here's God at work. Let me say this to you. As we think about creation and all that is. We all have our views about where everything 
came from? You say, well, you just said it all came from God. I'm, I'm, I checked that box. I'm with you. Well, how did God do it? And that's some of the what we're going to look at today. And there are probably, as we said last week, many of you remember being taught Darwinism and evolution. And, and I will say some Christians are way over here and say, just I don't, I don't even want to hear that word or that name. And then you've got some way over here going, you know, I think that possibly, is it possible that maybe that is the process that God used? And so we wonder about these things. And there's a lot of these debates and arguments I'm not going to get into today. I'm going to just kind of slap them upside the head just a little bit, you know, and kind of make a comment. Let you do some studying. I'm not even going to uh, reveal all the cards in my own hand. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to say some things that I think come straight out of Scripture. And this is where we should hang our hat. First question is, can Christians believe in Darwinism? You know, Charles Darwin and the origin of the species, 1800s and all of that. And from which Darwinism comes the theory of evolution, right? Which is, as we said last week, basically taught in science class as indisputable irrefutable fact but that is not the case there are a lot of problems in Darwin's theory and evolution but can a Christian should a Christian maybe I should say believe in the process of evolution well the first thing you should do is, is say let's clarify our terms here what is evolution anybody here not ever heard the term evolution okay okay we're good just making sure we're on the same footing you're awake I'd like to get y'all raising your arms a little bit. Get your blood flowing, right? Because your blood's going to be pumping here in a minute. You're going to say, what's he going to say next? Can I tune this guy off? Is he a heretic? Evolution. What is the theory of evolution? What does it say? Well, I'm going to give you two quotes. And again, not everyone would agree exactly how to define it. But if we're asking the question, can Christians in good conscience, trying to square up Genesis 1, can we buy into Darwinism and evolution? Well, Here's Harvard paleontologist George Gaylord Simpson. Listen to what he says about evolution. The meaning of evolution, which is the guiding premise of the branch of natural science that studies the history of life, is that man is the result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. Harvard paleontologist defining evolution saying, you know, this is the guiding premise of the natural sciences. Now, we could disagree with that, but the way he defines it, he says the meaning of evolution is that all of this, including man, came from a purposeless and natural, strictly natural, you might read, no supernatural process that did not have man in mind. So, question one, students, does that seem to accord with Genesis 1? A college textbook author, Douglas Futuyama, talking about evolution. Here's what he says. Some shrink from the conclusion that the human species was not designed, has no purpose, and is the product of mere mechanical mechanisms. But this seems to be the message of evolution. I would say, if we only take those two things... And we ask the question, should Christians buy into or subscribe or sign their name under the category of evolutionist? The answer would be no. Because a premise behind it is that there is no supernatural. It's meaningless, purposeless, and it's mere mechanisms of science. Now, you can disagree with those definitions. That's fine. But I would say we should be very careful 
of who we're willing to get in the camp with when we talk about origins, just for those reasons. Because many times, when we think of Darwinism or evolution or whatever, we're thinking, well, yeah, sure, uh, uh, species, they mutate. Do species mutate from one generation to another? Yes. But they generally don't go from a human to an earthworm very quickly or so on. And some of what you see shown as evolution and the way they're trying to piece together all the pieces based on fossil life and all of that is that they say that's basically what happened in the Cambrian explosion is that all of a sudden, bang, there's your big bang. Here's a bunch of species that just didn't exist just a generation or two ago. So we say, well, sure, there's mutation, but I don't know about all of that. Or adaptation over time. Do uh, generations seem to select... And, and, you know, the survival of the fittest and all of that, does some of that appear to occur? Yes, some of that appears to occur. But is that the same as saying we're going to buy into full-blown evolution? So I think we should be very careful. We should ask people to define their terms. But there is a category called theistic evolution. That is, Gleason Archer and various ones, and you'll find scientists today who I have no doubt are well-meaning Christians and all of that, who would say, well, what I believe in is theistic evolution. So they changed the term. And so again, it's a little bit of muddy water. I'm not here to, to do a science lesson. Someone could give me a science lesson. But I would just say as we look at Genesis 1 and ask the question, does it seem to line up fairly well with evolution? I would say we should be very careful. I would say for most, the evolution proper, no, there is not a good accord with that. So several reasons that we should maybe look for a different way of talking about what we understand as Christians besides the camp of evolution. And I think it's simple. We believe in creation. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth and all that is. And as we see, or we're going to see in the verses that come, is there a progressive movement? Yes, there actually is, right? It doesn't say that God said bang and everything was exactly as it would be, there is a process described here in the early chapters of Genesis. So I do think we can say, yes, there is a progression here, there is a process, but it was certainly not mindless. Or, nor was it that God kind of zapped some things and stepped back and went on to watch his favorite television show or do something else. He didn't check out for lunch. Here is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And that indicates to me a close superintending. He's being very careful. He's there and he's working these things according to the counsel of his infinite power and will. So, the Spirit of God is hovering. And then there is in verse 3 this repeated and recurring phrase, God said... Let there be, and there was. Hey, don't you wish you had that kind of power? I say it, it happens. That's the way it is at my house. I don't know about y'all. <laughs> if I do it, then it works. It works. I say it, and then I go to it. No, no, no. You, you know, you, but you think about that. God just says it. It's the power of his word. Now, the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Is he the one speaking? No, I think it's the father is speaking and he just, he just speaks it into existence. Now, we're, we're funneling down. We're asking questions. Are there things we need to call out of our, out of our uh, camp when it comes to understanding of origins? And are there things that we need to keep? What things do we need to keep? 
Now, if I asked many of you, I would say this. I would say, what do we have to believe to be a good Bible-believing Christian about the origins and creation? Now, some of you would immediately jump into the six literal days, the 24-hour days. But I would say this. You know, we should look at what Jesus taught. What did Jesus seem to believe? What, did he, it, what does the uh, Gospels indicate that he accepted? But also we should look at the further teaching of the New Testament. And I try to do that with these kinds of things. You, I've, you've heard me say that before. And so you, I would go to a place like 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5 and say, you know, Peter, here is this disciple of Jesus. What did he say is the core of what we understand about creation? And in 2 Peter 3, 5, now he's actually talking about judgment to come. But he says this. He says, this is really what we believe, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and by water. So Peter picks up and says, there's this core element, this idea that actually we believe this is not figurative language, that God spoke these things. It is by his word that they come into existence. And so... We need to really latch on to that, that God created, and he did so by his spoken word. It's amazing to think that we serve a God who speaks, a God who works. And so uh, Wednesday night in our uh, small group over across the road, uh, someone, we just got to talking about all sorts of things. A great question is we started getting into some of these deep philosophical questions. Why is there anything? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why are these, there these things and not other things? Why does the world work this way? And a very basic fundamental answer that we see in Genesis is because God wanted it that way and he spoke it that way. It didn't come across or come around because of blind, random chance. God spoke out of, again, the infinite wisdom that he has. It is, listen folks, everything that is is the overflow of the power and the wisdom and the love and the creativity of the creating God. So that's where we start with some of these big philosophical questions. You say, well, I wanted a big answer. Sometimes the best answers are not great big answers. They're simple. They're so simple. You know, I was thinking about children coming to church. If you've got children here today, thank you for bringing your children to church. They will get more out of it, maybe, than you do, number one. But they may not get everything. Probably no one sitting here today is going to remember everything that is said. But when we read the Word of God and we hear these things and your children are here, it will shape them and they will hear and they will remember some things. Simple answer. It all begins with God, and he spoke it into existence. Let's move on, verses 3 through 10. This is the days of creation. So let's just read that. It says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were below the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then 
God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Here are at least the first three days of creation that we just read. Here's the favorite trivia question everybody asks. I even heard this on Jeopardy not long ago. How many days in the biblical story did it take for God to create the heavens and the earth? What's the answer? See, y'all would have won Jeopardy. It's six. It's not seven, right? On the seventh day, he rested, but it presents here these six days. The word is yom. Six days of creation. And that begs the question, are we talking about six literal 24-hour days? Or is there a possibility that in reading this, that maybe, in fact, those days are just a way of explaining long epics and ages? Some might say thousands of years, some might say millions of years. Because you know in popular science today there is the idea of the earth and the, uh, um, of the universe being hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions if not billions of years old. And it taking all of this time and we look at fossil records and all of this and so we've heard that stuff and we read this and we wonder how are we supposed to take it. And I would say this first of all. That I think this is an in-house debate where we can validly disagree as long as we're holding on to the major things. That's what I would say. Now, not everybody is as broad-minded and nice as I am. So in other words, a lot of people would say, if you're not in my camp, you're not in the camp at all. You're not a Christian, you're a heretic, you're soft or whatever. But I would just say I'm going to present a couple of pieces of information that I think would at least begin to scratch the surface, surface in both camps but I just say this, and I'm just going to tell you honestly, I've been in both camps. I was in one, and then I went over to the other, and then as I actually, in it's scriptural evidence that led me back to another, and then I'm not even going to tell you where I'm at today, but I think you can validly hold to either. Now, some of you are going to disagree with that, and that's okay. You can be wrong. <laughs> There are popular Bible teachers today that would say, if you hold to something besides, you know, just six 24-hour days of creation, you are not uh, appropriately interpreting the Bible. I disagree. But here's what I would say. Some basic arguments for uh, the 24-hour day of creation. Well, number one, it, it says a day, doesn't it? It says a day. And one rule of interpretation is if it says that and there's no compelling reason to believe it to be otherwise, then go with it. Could God have created everything? Could he speak and create all of these wads of things in a day? He could do it in a millisecond if he wanted to. I believe that. I believe that God has the power to do whatever he wants to do. All right. However he wants to do it. And it does say a day. Another reason for thinking that it is very likely 24-hour days is because it says there was evening and there was morning. We typically think about that being the close of an actual day and the beginning of an actual day. A really big one that they would point out is say this. Let's say, look, the pattern of the Sabbath day, of, of the Jewish people resting and not working, it comes from this idea that God rested 
on the seventh day in creation. And so there's that pattern, and they followed that pattern, and so it seems good that, you know, very likely that is what is meant here. So that's an argument. So those are some of the basic arguments. A day is a day. Um, It does seem like many of the New Testament writers believed a day meant a 24-hour day. Now, the question is, is there some elasticity to that term yom or day? In other words, is there, are there places in the Bible? And this gets to be the arguments where people go, I don't think it's 24 hours necessarily. Could be. I don't think it is. They would say there's elasticity to that term yom. In other words, a day is as a thousand years. There are places. It says the day of the Lord, which honestly, obviously means these large epic times that are more than 24 hours. Now, is that the normal use of it? No, it's not. But is it ever used that way? Yes, it is. Here's a big argument against the 24-hour day. It's that the sun is not created until, what, day three, is it? So, so on day one, the sun has not yet been created. And if we understand a day... Is this heliocentric? It's the idea, you know, of the Earth's rotation and all of that kind of stuff. We go, well, it's hard for me to think about that it had to be a 24-hour day because the sun was not even created. So it couldn't be a solar day. That's what some would argue about a figurative reading of day. I'll tell you, here's one that, I mean, for me, this is where I personally really began to question at a point in my own journey whether it should be understood. Wouldn't literal interpretation, no room for figurative understanding, is I just kept reading past Genesis 1. And in Genesis chapter 2, and again, I was preparing to preach. It's been about a decade ago. And I mean, I've got, and I keep notes. I mean, I'm just taking notes and I'm, I'm writing down and I'm charting things out and I've got my calendar and all of that. And then you come to Genesis 2, which is either the second or, depending on how you understand things, the third telling of the creation story. And there is actually a different order given. In that one, man comes first, and then it says, but there, is no, there are no plants and so on, which does not parallel with what Genesis chapter 1 says. So for me, if I'm beginning to question, I'm not questioning things because Carl Sagan said it or Charles Darwin said it. I begin to question and go, how do I understand? How do I put these things and harmonize them together? So I'll leave that for you, but that is... An issue, as you're doing Bible interpretation, is trying to put everywhere the Bible speaks about something, put it together. Here's the big one for many people, is that scientists are saying that things are hundreds of millions of years old, and it took a long, long time. It took, it took millions and billions of years for these things to occur. I put a whole lot less talk personally in those things. And I would say this, when you really start weighing it down, saying, whose side, who am I going to believe? Now, we can care caricature people here but here's what I would say is let's let the word of God be true and every man be a liar I want to lean towards that side and go you know I just want to take the Bible and understand what it says but I would just say this what about where it says days hey listen whichever camp you're in you're okay in my book now there may be some people here that call you a heretic but I think there is room for interpreting that in multiple ways now listen Is the glory of God diminished in some way if the earth is only 6,000 years old and and, and he did it in 24 
our days? Is, is, is God somehow less grand because he didn't take billions of years, but that he spoke things into existence? Hey, listen, one of the things we're also going to see is that it does appear, especially in the creation of man. God created when he brought man into existence. He did it and gave man the appearance of maturity. So Adam was shaving on the day he was born. Did you ever think about that? I don't know if he was shaving. There were no razors formed yet. Did you ever think about that? That God created this man. He's already sexually mature apparently and all of that. So God created him with the appearance of maturity. And so that's one of the ways people look and go, you know, where the earth maybe looks like and the universe looks like it's really, really old, is it possible that when God spoke it into existence, things came into being with a, an appearance or already being mature? But listen, you should wrestle with these things. But I would also say you should hold them graciously. The big thing that I think that Christians, all Christians, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you must believe, is that everything that is here did not come about by a mindless purposelessness. Mere mechanisms that God did it. He superintended it. He was actively involved in it. He did it progressively. That's what we're seeing here. But it says he did it in days. All right? Let's talk about some of those days briefly as we wrap this thing up. There's lots of different ways that people uh, kind of outline and, and sort out and try to understand the days of creation. And my favorite one is the idea, and there's a real symmetry in the, in the literature here, uh, of days of forming in the first three days and days of filling in the second three days. To me, that is a nice model to look at as we're trying to break this into smaller pieces. But ultimately, in my sermon today, here's what I want to say is that when we see the days of creation as we read on, we see days of distinction and days of differentiation. Those are some terms I think we need to grab hold of. Days of distinction and days of differentiation. So let's read the rest of uh, this account, verses 11 through 27. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit, trees on the earth bearing fruit according to their kind with seed in them and so it was or it was so the earth produced vegetation plants yielding seed according to their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in them according to their kind and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning a third day then God said let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and they shall serve as signs and for seasons and for days and years. And they shall serve as lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, seemingly the sun, right? And the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night. And to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a fourth day. Then God said let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. With which the waters swarmed according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. 
Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kind, livestock and crawling things and animals of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the animals of the earth according to their kind and livestock according to their kind and everything that crawls on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Sounds just like the Boone County Fair, doesn't it? All of these different creatures and their multitudes and kinds and, and uh, men and women, uh, humans, having dominion over them. If you ever want to see a great picture of human dominion over the creatures, go watch a hog show. Amen? <laughs> go watch a hog show or something like that. I don't know why. I've, those are the things that roll through my mind this time of year as I'm reading that. That was not in my notes. A fascinating, though, aspect of creation. Again, God begins. He speaks this, again, kind of primordial heavens and earth into being. But it's formless. It's void. There's no distinction. There's no differentiation. It's just kind of a, a soup, if you will. And the Spirit of God is hovering over. There's little structure. There's just this kind of basic reality. And then the master creator begins to pull out. And draw out and form, if you will, on his cosmic workbench. And there are these first three days, the days of forming. And in that, these are the primary structures where life is found. The primary physical realities, the principles of life. says he creates light. Light. He separates that out from the darkness. And he makes morning and evening. Day two. There is just the waters. The earth is, is just, it's waters. It's a watery wilderness. He separates the waters. The waters above, the way I understand that would be the atmosphere, like up in the clouds from which the rain falls, and then the sea. So, so he makes this space, this atmosphere, in which these living creatures that are going to come will be able to inhabit those that aren't the sea creatures, that is. Day three. Here are these waters below. What does he do? <coughs> Separates them out. Pulls up this dry land. So you've got the seas and the land. And on that land, what does he do? Makes these various kinds of vegetation. And so in the second set of three days, the days of filling, God doesn't just leave these barren places and spaces what does he do he fills them up with all sorts of kinds of creatures that will then what they're be they're blessed and they're told to multiply from out of their kind and so from these basic kinds come all of the kinds did God create dinosaurs or were they somehow before God <laughs> God created them these sea creatures, land creatures, beasts and insects and creepy crawly things and all of the things, the kind of things that you step on because you don't want them in your house. God created those. Shame on you. <laughs> no, see, they've transgressed their space, right? So we don't, if they transgress their space, they're gone. 
He, he fills these spaces and these places with life and creatures. And I know y'all know this, but it's just a beautiful thing that reflects the reality of the universe. But not just down here, not just a geocentric, but up there. He creates. I want you to think about that. Just what little you know about the power and the immensity of the sun. You see, there were ancient peoples, of course, that worshipped the sun and the moon because they were these massive bodies out there, these entities that seemed to do all kinds of things and have great power, and so they worshipped those things. And guess what? Those are things that God just spoke into existence and just flung out there. Don't worship those. Worship the one that created those. And all of these things God created. So he fills up. Again, I'm just amazed at our knowledge, what little we do know about the size of the universe and the heavens. And you know, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. How do they do that? I'll tell you one way they do it. Is their amazing immensity. The universe is not eternal or infinite. Only God is. All of this amazing space is a subset. It's smaller than God who created it. I tell you, what kind of God is that big? He must be worthy of our worship. He's so much bigger and far beyond anything that we could even fathom. But not just in the big spaces, right down here in the small places. All the way down to the little fishies and minnows and tadpoles and mussels and oysters and crabs. Oh, y'all are wanting seafood for lunch, I can tell it. And all of the kingdom and phyla and class, order, family, genus, species, all of those things that's, that exist and all of the birds. Any bird watchers here? Man. Any bird hunters here? <laughs> that's, the main, that's the best way to watch birds is down the... Uh, anyway. That season's coming up too. All of these things that fly and swim and team and crawl and run. You know where they came from? From an infinite, amazing, astounding, brilliant all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing God, who from the overflow of his heart, creativity, and power spoke these things into existence. They didn't happen randomly or by accident. He designed them and spoke them into being. Did he make processes that would govern his creation? Yes, he did. Inheritance and genetics and all of these things. You know what those are? Those are the processes that God put in place, and he superintends even still today. And then we come to another bipedal, two-leg creature named man. Hey, look at your neighbor and say, you're a creature. Some of y'all are really creatures. <laughs> I know my wife thinks that about me sometimes. You know what you are? You're a creature. And so am I. You're not a God. You didn't create all this stuff, and I didn't either. You're a creature. But you're a special creature. You're not the cousin or uncle or aunt of a monkey or a chimpanzee. 
God made those on a different episode. You didn't over generations and eons and eons evolve from your Neanderthal relatives. Because they're not your relatives except in this. We all have a common creator. Every creature has a common creator. But you're a creature that was thought up in the mind of God. Specially. Differently than the other creatures. God in this pinnacle moment creates man or we could say humankind now listen I give you the category days of differentiation and distinction though sometimes we act like the other beasts of the field we were created as humans with the image of God some very interesting and distinct abilities and responsibilities to reflect God and to steward his creation. And then there is a distinction that I tell you we need to hear this today. God created man. Male and female. He created them. And I don't know why. But one of the things that fallen people like to do. Is to twist around and torque with and pervert and, 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 and uh, ignore or speak against aspects of God's creation and his created purposes. And I, I tell you, I'm actually saddened. I'm, I'm uh, uh, trying not to be fearful, right? We say no, fear has no place. But I look at our world today and some very important distinctions that God created, we're trying to erase. Male and female, humans... Hey, listen, if you're a human being born to human parents, you're not a monkey, you're not a cat, you're not a dog. You're a human, and that means something. It's, it's a special designation given by God. If you are male or you're female, God has created you thus. Now, are there some things that are culturally... Um, bound to the sexes or genders that maybe in all places and times don't apply? Sure there are. For instance, Abraham and the people in the Bible wore stuff that I'd call a dress, and I ain't wearing a dress. <laughs> it was a robe, though. It wasn't a dress. See, they had their own cultural distinctions. And, and, and they had their ways. They would dress and their hair and things like that. That's some of the ways we understand some of the commands given in the Bible for males and females is to say, don't blur those lines. Right? So some of it, yes, is culturally bound. But what I would say is the designations and distinctions of male and female and human are not culturally bound. They're part of the created fabric and order given by God for a purpose. And we'll study a little more about that in days ahead when we look into the story a little deeper of Adam and Eve. But let's don't blur the lines of distinction and differentiation given in the Bible. You know what we should do? We should embrace them and seek to understand and see the glory of God in those differences and distinctions. And make sure that we uphold them. Because I'll tell you, our culture is slowly losing their grip on reality in these areas. And I'm not saying all that to be ugly. 
One of the things that the enemy does, and we're going to see that again in Genesis chapter 3, he comes in, and God's got this good. Did y'all notice how many times God said he created and it was good? Well, someone comes in and says, well, it's not so good. You ought to transgress that. And the whole thing gets kind of flipped on its head and messed up. And we're still living in that reality today. God created all of these things the way he created them, good and with good purposes. So how do you apply this? I don't know. I'll leave that to you and the Holy Spirit. But here's what I could say is, God is at the center of everything. We need need a God-centered view of everything. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? For Him. For His glory. For His pleasure. For good. That's why God created these things. A God-centered view of everything. Why did God create you? Put you in the place and time and parentage in which you are found. For His glory for his good, and for yours. God-centered view of all things. Embrace the distinctives that God has given. Parents, keep bringing your kids to church. Even though sometimes we use unclear words and things like that, there are some things they can understand clearly. All of us, read the Bible. Study it. We should probably spend a whole lot less time reading what other people say about the Bible and more time just reading the Bible. I got a text at 6 o'clock this morning from a Christian friend and it basically was just a picture of a a page in his study Bible. But it was about the power of the Word of God. Because I was coming here today going, man, I'm going to tread off into some stuff where uh, different ones disagree. And you can disagree with me, that's all right. Because I know this. I know that ultimately the power is in the word. All right, so let's be a people of the word. Let's disagree charitably. Let's sharpen each other when it comes to these things. But man, let God be at the very center. All right? Would you bow with me as we go to the Lord and let him impress these things on our heart. And then we're going to have a time of celebration real quickly and some announcements and be dismissed. Lord, today, from your word, we come across all sorts of fascinating and beautiful things. I pray that we would see these things led by your spirit, revealed by your spirit, and that you would teach us and reaffirm for us the beautiful realities of the fact that you created all of these things for good purposes. Help us to be a people of the book. Help us today, Lord, to bow the knee our creaturely created bodies and minds before you, the sovereign God and creator of the universe. Lord, fill up our heart with answers, even realizing that we sometimes still have questions about how all of these things come together. Would you affirm for us in our hearts today by your word and by your spirit the truth that you are at the center and let all of our lives revolve around you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.